recording is on. All right, and we are live. All right, Sounds everybody. Good. Yes, so we are here with Arctic Mine. Uh, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. This is Manera Mateo. Uh, we are blessed to have a technical guy onto the show. Uh, we don't speak too much about the technicals here on the show. I'm sort of a noob when it comes to this. As I was telling uh, Arctic Mine over Reddit, I still have a Gmail account, so still need to get with the picture a little bit. But um, yes, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we have so much to discuss here, so many deets to get into. Um, but I wanted to get your thoughts first, uh, Arctic Mine, on mm -hmm. the El Salvador adoption of Bitcoin, um, because that's one of the reasons we actually got in touch is because we we're chatting on Reddit about the Lightning Network. And so I'd like to get your thoughts on what's going on there. Well, let me get, get a bit of background on this. I looked at the motivation for the El Salvador government behind this. Uh, and I think that's very important. If you look at the um, percentage of the El Salvador GDP, which is due to remittances, is about 24%. So this has significant impacts on the economy of El Salvador. If you can cut the uh, remittance costs down, and some of these remittance costs could be as high as 20%. So you can do the math right off the top of your head. You're looking at a 4 to 5% of GDP just by cutting remittance costs down. Yeah. So the impact on the economy is potentially phenomenal. Um, I think it's, there's a variety of problems they're facing. The first one, of course, is that Bitcoin simply on the on the main chain can, doesn't have a hope of scaling to meet something like this. Lightning Network, the liquidity is just not there. It's only about 100 million uh, US dollars right now. So they're getting some real challenges with that. What they're doing, from what I understand, is a um, centralized uh, wallet that's sort of on top of lightning. And, and again, they're going to have growing pains with all of that. That being said, I think the move on the on the part of the Salvadoran government is something that they had to do from an economic perspective. Um, they're going to find some serious scaling problems with Bitcoin, even with Lightning Network, and they're going to have to diversify cryptocurrencies to make it work. That's my, my thought on it. Interesting. So they're going to need to bring in more liquidity pools with different cryptos in order to make it so that, uh, you know, you could have more access. Well, I think the problem that they have is whether the Bitcoin blockchain can handle the traffic. It's not a problem with liquidity. Uh, Bitcoin's got the liquidity. The problem there is that they don't have the traffic uh, capabilities in the blockchain, even just to on-ramp into these wallets and on-ramp back off of them and so on. I think they may have problems with scaling on the main chain, and that's going to flow into scaling on Lightning. So they have they got to run into scaling bottlenecks. That's what I see there. Um, so that's the problem. I think that there, there are going to be scaling issues, assuming that it's going to be decentralized, but I'm not so sure it's going to be that case. I mean, if you onboard a lot of people to centralized hubs, um, perhaps you could get a lot of people onboarded, but then it's going to be very centralized because as far as I'm concerned as to how the math works, I mean, as you said, uh, Bitcoin only has about a capacity of five transactions per second, right? And mm -hmm. so to onboard millions of people to the Lightning Network using a transaction on chain, uh, that's going to be incredibly difficult. Um, so what are your thoughts on them just onboarding people directly to custodial wallets, which seems to be the case with El Salvador? Well, that's what they may try to do. But in order to get to the custodial wallet, you're going to have to go through the chain. I mean, this is the problem that 
that I see with any kind of second tier solution. If your main, now you can think of a custodial wallet as a second tier solution, but it's still limited by you having to settle on chain. So you get a leverage on effect on the custodial wallet. I mean, you do the same thing, with, um, but that is going to limit what you can do on chain. Um, it's still going to be limited by what you can do on chain in Bitcoin. So I think that's where they're going to run into issues. Keep in mind that existing liquidity in the um, Lightning Network is about 100 million US dollars. And we're talking in the billions here as far as the liquidity that you're going to need uh, on the Bitcoin blockchain. Now, Bitcoin blockchain on the main chain has the liquidity. There's no problem there. But you have to then get the scaling to work. So they, they could run into into bottlenecks just because even just to onboard through Lightning into a custodial wallet, you're still going to run have bottleneck problems. Right. And I apologize. I don't think I properly introduced you. You are on the Monero core development team. Your <clears throat> your t your primary orientation is for scaling. You work on scaling that is correct. For Monero, so you know a lot about scaling and the issues regarding that. And so given that even the Lightning Network is going to have scaling issues and a lot of the Bitcoiners think that this is sort of the solution to a lot of the scalability issues, which a lot of people have knocked on Bitcoin in the past for, uh, what are your thoughts on scalability for Monero versus the Lightning Network? Um, I'd like to get okay. your thoughts on that. Let me go back about it. We'll give you a bit of my own history. I was a, a Bitcoin, a Bitcoiner uh, up until 2014. I was what you would consider a Bitcoin maximalist today. Um, and I was really concerned about scaling back then. I came across Monero in 2014 while studying Bitcoin scaling by chance on um, Bitcoin Talk. And I then... I'm actually the person who introduced me through a post is Fristo Petilia. And he at the time had a lot of um, uh, following. He was a strong, you know, uh, had a lot of reputation, which he subsequently lost. But at that point in time, he was well regarded. And so I listened enough to his case. And then I decided to investigate Monero. And this was like early, to uh, just after his launch in 2014. And what I realized right from the very beginning is that Monero had addressed the very problem fundamentally at the heart of Bitcoin scaling, which is the adaptive block size and the tail emission. It took me a while to figure this out. But once I realized that Monero has solved this problem, I'm somebody who has joined the Monero network and become involved with Monero because of scaling, not because of privacy. Hmm. And this is a bit of a shock to a lot of people in the Monero community. Um, but what got me into Monero originally was scaling. Um, and it's the fact that I reached the conclusion by now, of course, I've reached the conclusion that Monero, that uh, Bitcoin scaling simply doesn't work at all. And that there are fundamental design flaws in Bitcoin, which I should pre prevent scaling uh, on, the, on, the, on the first tier. And that cripples whatever you're going to do on second tier um, issues. And technically speaking, a lot of my research on Monero is what's led me to that conclusion. Mm. So trying to understand scaling in Monero... <clears throat> It's what's given me the, the idea that there are very serious problems in Bitcoin. And when I'm saying in Bitcoin, I'm also meaning coins such as Bitcoin Cash or Bitcoin SV or Litecoin. Pretty well anything that, uh, that's got a maximum number of coins and no minimum tail emission. So with the ex exception of Dogecoin, for example, major problems are all these coins. And it comes down to two things. There is an assumption in the Bitcoin community that somehow, magically, um, transactions fees are going to re replace block rewards in 
um, as a means of securing the proof of work. And there's no evidence for this. I have yet to see a paper, a game theory, anything supporting this assertion, which is other than just citing authority in the form of Satoshi, there is no evidence. And that goes to the heart, in my opinion, of the Bitcoin dispute uh, over, over the block size. So what you have is a small blocker saying, wait a minute, the only way we're going to have a hope is to restrict the block size. And that cripples scaling in order to get security. And then on the other hand, you have the big blockers that look at the business consequences and they say, well, this is a disaster. It's failed as a transactional currency. Now, why do I say this? And this is because of my study on Monero scale. Now, Monero has an, a fixed tail emission, but, and it has this adaptive quadratic block size. So you take the median of 100 blocks, and if you're the effective medium of 100 blocks, and if you then decide to create a bigger block, what you get is that you pay a penalty. And this penalty is the square of the percentage increase in the block size. So then you calculate what the fees should be. You can predict all this. All you have to do is make an assumption that you have the uh, miners and users that are totally decentralized, that are totally independent of each other, and they're acting in their enlightened best interest. So a total free market between users and miners. And it's very simple. The miners going to do the same thing they do in Bitcoin. They're going to order the transactions in the highest paying per byte first until they fill up the block. In Monero, what they're going to do is they're going to do the same thing. But when they hit the penalty, they're going to test against the penalty. So they're going to keep adding transactions until the incremental cost of adding a transaction is greater than the fee. At that time, you stop. So you can calculate what the scaling fee can be. You can basically calculate it predictably. It's very predictable. And that's exactly how my work in, in, in setting fees in Monero has essentially come down to. This is what it's based upon. So what's your prediction? Well, you're familiar, I'm sure, what, what is fee and reward. It's the percentage of fees in a proof-of-work currency that are uh, the, the percentage of the overall reward that corresponds to fees versus the block reward. What this predicts, what you can show in Monero, is that the fee and reward, i.e. the percentage of the total block reward that is fees, will actually fall or remain constant with time as you increase the block size. That's amazing. I mean, I had somebody comment on one of my videos because I had discussed that, and that was mind-blowing to me. And they're like, is this really true? This can't be true. But it is. Uh, as there are more transactions, the cost of the transactions actually goes down because of the dynamic block size. That's what you're saying. Well, essentially what you have is more transactions paying the same penalty because the penalty is a percentage increase in the block size and the transactions have a fixed size. Right. So you have more transactions paying over. And because it's a quadratic penalty, it can be as high as the square. So then you add up to how many fees are you going to get in the block, and this actually falls with increase in block size. Okay, so now we have a parameter where this is how Monero works. Okay, this is great. You can go ahead and, and do the kind of research that I've done and then make the recommendations that I've done and you implement them in the Monero blockchain. It all works great in Monero. But what makes this work in Monero is only one thing, the fact that you have a minimum of tail emission. Right. Because mm -hmm. you, you don't take, have in other blockchains. That's correct. So the reason scaling works in Monero and the only reason it works is because of that minimum tail emission. 
you do not expect and cannot expect to replace transaction block rewards with transaction fees, as Satoshi envisioned. That is simply not possible in Monero. Okay, so now we have a sorry. So yeah, so one, now, one more. Can I have a question? One second. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Dynamic block size that mm -hmm. necessitates tail emission in order for those things to work synergistically. Yes, absolutely. And you're saying that Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Litecoin, which a lot of people see to be scalable because they have low uh, transaction fees, at some point along the adoption curve, you're going to have uh, you know, a limitation as to how many transactions could fit into a block or just uh, in regards to the incentive to the miners to mine the block, uh, right? Something like that. Uh, they're going to be incentivized well, at a certain point to mine it. Absolutely. I mean, and in fact, you can predict because here's, here's, if we look then, so you have a penalty in Monero. So now we, you, you can identify, okay, say fine. You can make an obvious conclusion. If your penalty to increase the block size is less, effective penalty is less than that in Monero, then you would expect your fees to go to zero with the transaction fees go to zero. Because remember, I'm saying that the, the fees as a percentage of the overall block reward are going to go to zero. If the block reward itself is also going to zero, you know, we have a double whammy here. So what's happening actually is as you increase the block size, your whole reward goes to zero. So the whole thing becomes insecure. Right. Okay. Yeah. If and as the balance, continues, that reward goes down and they have to rely on transaction fees and they know. can't. So what they have to do is effectively the only reasonable solution to have a hope of making this work. And I'm not saying that it will work. But to have a hope of making this work is what Bitcoin Core has done, which is just to clamp down on the block size. So that's the only real answer that you have. Now, the third people are going to say, well, what about minor boating? Well, minor boating is, is basically having the miners clamp down on the block size rather than the developers. So you said minor boating? Minor boating to set up the block size. Voting. Yes, so by okay. miners. So the miners would, would like in a in a yacht or something. <laughs> Ethereum Ethereum works on that principle with the gas prices, which is effectively the block size in, in Ethereum. Okay. The miners put a cap on the gas limit, which effectively caps the, the the block size, and then they control that in order to keep the fees up. Well, again, what's happened in Ethereum? The fees are very high, and if you look carefully at Ethereum orphan blocks which is the equivalent of, um, sorry, uncle blocks, which is the equivalent of open blocks in a coin like Monero or Bitcoin. Uh, they have not increased. So basically you're having the miners putting a cap. So now instead of the developers putting the cap through, for example, a, a, a fixed block size, as in Bitcoin, you have the miners putting the cap through not increasing it. And of course you have a, essentially either a mining cartel or a thing breaks down. So, so you have real problems with that model. The other, and this is the worst case scenario. This is even the best case scenario. If you, there's no guarantee that even with the draconian actions that Bitcoin Core has taken, that they're going to get security with fees. I mean, just take a look at what's recently happened. We saw fees plunge from $60 to about less than a dollar for Bitcoin. All that happened is the transaction level went slightly below the maximum, and there's no pressure on fees. Well, what's that going to do to the hash rate? What's that going to do to your proof of work security? We're talking a sixty-fold drop yeah. in 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 your in your incentives. So, so there's some really very serious problems here that nobody wants to really talk about. 
and that really pushed some serious questions on the viability or long-term viability of the idea that you could replace transaction, uh, sorry, block rewards with transaction fees in proof of work with a decentralized coin. That is essentially what it comes down to. Right. And um, you speak a lot about regulations. I want to get to that yet because there's a lot to mm -hmm. talk about in regards to that. But mm -hmm. if you have centralization of Bitcoin mining operations, and we're seeing this a little bit with Blockstream, uh, the digital currency group is investing in a lot of uh, uh, Bitcoin mining operations. And so we already see the centralization creeping in a little bit. But if centralization happens, uh, the regulatory attack vectors become much more open. Uh, it seems that they're much more vulnerable to regulation. And there is seemingly an issue regarding OFAC and the ability for them to blacklist coins. And Juraj Bednar, uh, surely you've heard of him. Uh, he has talked about how if 10% of the miners uh, have to undergo a certain regulatory program, then that incentivizes the rest of the miners to follow along with that program because of a game theory type of thing kicking in. So what are your thoughts on that? Uh, as centralization increases, as you just talked about, what are the risks with regulation? What are the risks with this thing really being permissionless and trustless? Uh, very high. And in fact, it's another problem is that the what I've been talking about uh, with respect to scaling will push centralization as a means of setting up a mining cartel to try to keep those fees up. So you have real economic pressures for centralization simply because of scaling. So yes, I think there's some serious risks in, in Bitcoin in that respect. I would also comment on Ethereum in a, in a, from a regulatory perspective even worse, and I'll tell you why. Ethereum is moving to proof of stake. And what happens with proof of stake is the majority of the staking will take place by coins that are on deposit on exchanges. And unlike Bitcoin miners, at, on the current leg legislation, a Bitcoin exchange is a money services business in the United States. Uh, uh, the term is uh, via VASP, uh, which they are subject to uh, anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing compliance. So legally, they have to do this. So they are going to be bound. The majority of the stakers are going to be bound by AML CFT laws uh, in Ethereum. And what that's going to mean is that you effectively have banks approving transactions. Uh, to be blunt, that's, I think, what could happen. So, yes, there's definitely very serious risks in Bitcoin. I think there's higher risks in Ethereum because of the staking move of what you're saying. Um, there's a real threat to decentralization through centralization in this manner. And, of course, the other problem with this is that what they are using to try to determine taint on the Bitcoin blockchain is highly suspect and unreliable. And this is another problem. We're not dealing with effective surveillance. The lack of privacy doesn't mean you have good surveillance. You have very poor surveillance. So you're going to have very high error rates in your false positives and false negatives. So you're going to fail at what you're trying to do of um, trying to prevent money laundering or terrorism and financing through the use of blockchain surveillance or what's commonly known as chain analysis. Hmm. So it'll fail at that. That's what I'm saying. But it will do a lot of harm in the process. Right, because a lot of people get caught up in that web, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, there could be false accusations. Uh, people could be kind of scared away from the blockchain. And they'll go to Monero or they'll go to another solution, um, <sighs> as we would hope. But yeah, I'm actually concerned of actually, uh, unless I buy Bitcoin from a 
AMLKYC exchange and deposit into another AMLKYC exchange, I would be concerned with Bitcoin as it stands right now. Right. And we've done some research on the growing KYC and we've done some reports where people take their funds off of Coinbase or Gemini or one of these centralized exchanges and they're tracking your coins off of the exchange. And it could be a couple hops away from that exchange where it gets caught up in some uh, activity, which they consider high risk. And then uh, they send you a note and they say, we want to shut off your account because you could be involved in this activity, which happened three hops away that you may not have actually been involved in. And so not only are they tracking the coins which come into the exchange, which they could consider tainted or high risk and shut off your account there, but they're tracking where it goes thereafter. And so there's just a lot of uh, overhead risk. Um, this is a very valid point. And in fact, it's what's an issue that we raised specifically in our response to the European Commission. Uh, there is a link on that. And there is a scenario where effectively what you have is the deliberate manipulation of Bitcoin, of Bitcoin surveillance on the Bitcoin blockchain in order to frame a completely innocent couple in our scenario. Uh, in on a, an act of terrorism comparable to the Oklahoma bombing. Really? This actually happened? No, 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 no. We, we just demonstrate <laughs> the scenario, how it, it could happen. easily be done. How it could easily be done. It's really simple. All you do, and the example is a towing company in Canada. So these people are from the EU, they're, they're, they're traveling in Canada. And uh, they, there was actually an epic towing in Canada for a reason. At one point, there was involvement of uh, organized crime activity with the towing industry in parts of Ontario. And essentially what happens is they pay for a tow with Bitcoin. And then the towing company gets shaken down by a criminal organization. And instead of just transferring the Bitcoin on the blockchain, the criminal organization asks them for the private key. Mm. So there isn't a transaction on the Bitcoin blockchain. But now the criminals rather than the tow company have control of the Bitcoin. And then what these criminals do is they launder the money by, in the scenario, by selling it for clean Bitcoin, by trading the private key with a would-be terrorist, mm. who in turn uses the, 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 the Bitcoin now on the blockchain to purchase bomb-making materials. Wow. So you're saying that the private key, which is associated with one individual, could be transferred to another wallet owned by another individual, but it's still linked to the prior individual. And then when that private key changes hands on the blockchain to somebody involved with that sketchy stuff, that individual uh, who initially had their identity tied to that private key is the one who gets blamed. Well, the, the identity is tied to the corresponding public key. Yeah. Because yeah. basically what you're doing in Bitcoin is you are tracking public keys in a, in a private public key encryption situation. So what they're tracking is the public key. Hmm. And they're linking it to an identity. But what has happened is you have a Bitcoin transaction effectively, but it's not on chain. Because you may, the, the criminals have taken the private key from the, from the merchant. Now, the merchant is under fear of some kind of action if they were to move the Bitcoins. They couldn't theory move the Bitcoins on the blockchain, but they're afraid of the criminal organization. It's extortion. So they have actually gotten out of control of the private key, but it looks like the, the innocent person paid directly the final supply of the bomb-making materials. Wow. 
That is quite hefty. <laughs> That's and that is simple to do. And this is so simple to do if you simply look at what these people are doing because they're only tracking what's on the chain. They're not tracking what's off the chain. Right, right. Um, I want to get your opinion on this. This is somewhat relevant, but uh, there were stories that came out earlier this year uh, regarding the meat packaging uh, thing, uh, this company which was cyber attacked by – uh, you know, Russian criminals or something like mm -hmm. this. And the Bitcoins were paid as a ransom to these uh, Russian uh, hackers. And then mm -hmm. somehow the FBI was able to get those Bitcoins back. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Um, and I want to tie this in because the FBI, as far as I can tell, just getting conspiratorial here with you, could it be that they set people up with honey traps with Bitcoin? Like you pay somebody who is associated with an organization, they then use that Bitcoin to do something nefarious, and then they tie it to you somehow, and somehow you could get falsely accused. Maybe they want to investigate you anyway. Is there a potential for that to happen? I know I'm getting I, I think in that case, what the probably occurred is that the FBI got control of the server keys and the private keys, uh, either through surveillance on a server or because they made mistakes somewhere. Um, it's not that different from what happened with Silk Road back in 2013, where they basically just uh, caught the person with the uh, laptop open and grabbed the private keys. Uh, Monero wouldn't protect you from that, in the sense that if you steal the private key, you get the private key, you still have it. What it does, of course, prevent is the false accusation. Mm -hmm. um, but I suspect that's what occurred in, that situ in, in those type of situations. It was likely some sort of external that they were using a compromised server, the criminals were using a compromised server at some point. Right, right, okay. Um, so let's go ahead, we're on a good tangent with scalability, <laughs> and we're tying that into tail emission, <clears throat> block size, which are really unique to um, Monero. And so I wanna get your thoughts on something regarding mining. Um, there's some new development regarding peer-to-peer decentralized mining pools. Uh, I don't mm -hmm. know if you've looked into that recently. I, I tried to get my head around that. I'm not a technical guy again, so I was just a little bit lost in the woods. But I was hoping maybe you could uh, flesh that out a little the bit. Basic I, that would be. I, I've heard various ideas on that. The basic concept, of course, is that you're, you want to uh, take power away from the pool and give it to the hashers, which is the individual people that are doing the hashing. Now, realistically, even with a conventional pool, um, the... Um, hashes really control if a pool starts doing something on two worlds then what happens is you simply move your hash rate somewhere else uh but yeah there's been a lot of work on this idea of decentralized mining pools i haven't really followed that closely to be able to sort of give you sort of a more intelligent answer on that but the basic concept is that you want to have that decentralization of the hashes uh and and take away the centralized control at the pool level and that's the concept in these kind of pools Right, because uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I heard mm -hmm. that there is some possibility of a 51% attack happening if uh, bots or something like this take over the computers running through this centralized uh, mining pool. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Is that FUD? I'm not, I, I wasn't able to flesh out a response to that, but I have heard that from people like Roger Ver that uh, computers could become automated to do the same thing and then that could be a 51 percent well the, the the idea is because essentially monero is a cpu coin that it's more vulnerable to bots um assumes a couple of 
misconceptions, I think. And the first one is, is that in a criminal environment, there is a cost to do this. And when you start mining with other people's computers, you're going to really start producing heat. And you're going to start drawing attention to yourself in a big way. So bots, they they have a certain amount of capability, but they're limited in scalability simply because they can they have to hide, but also because they are competing with other criminal activities. It might be more cost effective simply to send spam or to do something else there, than to actually mine Monero. So it, it's uh, I think a common thing that has been a concern I, that bots are going to be a sort of a threat. Historically, what I've seen is that bots are sort of going to probably have a small percentage of the hash rate, but it's not going to be that significant. Uh, I, that's kind of the evidence that, that so if you look at it over time, it's a classic ASIC argument. Uh, now, you mentioned Roger Bear, and, and of course, I've got to say, if, if a coin is vulnerable to 51% attacks, it's got to be Bitcoin Cash. Hmm. Why and the reason, oh, because they got all these surplus ASICs from Bitcoin. They got the same algorithm. And all you have to do is look at what happened to the uh, hash rate in Bitcoin Cash um, when the Chinese thing occurred. And Bitcoin hash rate dropped by about half. The Bitcoin Cash rate uh, dropped by about 80%. Whoa. They're very vulnerable to this because they're sitting on the tail end. And, and the other, and this is why they had to adjust the difficulty in various ways. So if there's a coin that's vulnerable, that's going to be Bitcoin Cash. I hate to say it, but it's because of the fact that all these surplus ASICs are floating around. It's very, and also, yeah, people are very hostile to it. They actually control these things. Mm -hmm. So, yep. so there's, there's, there's a real, uh, I hate to be, you know, if, 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 you, if you mentioned Roger Bass saying, well, yes, Monero could be attacked through bots and all that, I think the the real risk is, um, is it, it being, being sort of in the tail end of ASICs. But again, I come back to the Monero example. The, Bots by themselves going through a pool. Also, it's quite possible that the bots are running. That would be if they're big enough, they would likely run their own pool uh, and be a mysterious. They wouldn't use a, an existing pool. And it's just that they're not as significant as part of the hash rate as people seem to think of them. But that's kind of the evidence. That's kind of what I have seen when looking at it. I I haven't seen any serious evidence that this sort of a mysterious. I mean, there is definitely going to be bot mining in Monero, don't get me wrong, but it's not going to be what people think it is. Okay. Um, so staying on this mining uh, track, have you heard of Pirate Chain before? Have uh, you had that knocking on your door recently? Um, there are so many people on our channel who comment about Pirate Chain. They seem to love it a lot. But looking into it, they use ASICs, just like Bitcoin and um, okay. Uh, and Bitcoin Cash. So what are your thoughts on that? Does that leave them exposed one to a 51% attack question. or centralization? One question. One question. Does it have a maximum number of coins? Yes or no? I believe it does. 200 million. Uh, okay. Number one uh, against it. Number two, do they have a pre-mine, ninja mine, uh, founder's reward, anything along those lines? I don't think so. I don't think they did any pre-mine or ICO. No, any... any uh, any uh, minus reward? Any debt fund? Any debt tax? They say no on their website. Um, but here is one of my concerns that I was going to ask Drake mm -hmm. about, who's in charge of the project next week. The project's only been around for two years, yet it looks mm -hmm. like 93% of all of the pirate chain has already been mined. So there's no pre-mine, but it looks like a lot of it has already been mined. Uh, so I'm not sure what the implications of that would be. Some people seem to be nervous about that. 
But given our conversation about ASICs and given what I've heard and why random X is preferable to that, um, I wanted to see what your thoughts on. Oh, that. okay. So, yeah. So look at the mining side of it. I mean, but, but, but there's two problems. So the first problem is, um, is that ASICs, of course, what type of, what's their algorithm? Uh, an old, uh, is it a Monero type, the old Monero algorithms or something else or? What is the algorithm? Yeah, for, for, for mining. What is their proof of work? Oh, uh, goodness. I, I'm you want to know. Right now. Yeah, Let me put yeah, that on the list to ask him because I'm not, again. I'm yeah, that's a good question. But but here here's the question that I, would, that I would say two things. First of all, you're at the end of the mining curve, which basically means, so you're 93% mine, so your walk reward is going to plunge. The problem that they're going to have is essentially the problem that Bitcoin had. And they had to, which they had a massive, really massive pre-mine hidden as an India mine. And that is that they're gonna they're not gonna have you able to scale at all because their um their block rolls are gonna go to zero and they're gonna restrict fees. So whether they do that through a centralized ASIC mining, uh that could be the answer. Or they're gonna have to find a way to to restrict the block size and restrict the fees, otherwise they'll have no incentive. And in fact, that's that Bitcoin is a perfect example of this because they turned around in 2019 and they got rid of their adaptive block size. And the reason they did it is because Bitcoin, unlike Monero, did not have a tail emission. Right. And tail emission, from your perspective, is just key, is essential to the long-term viability of any cryptocurrency because of this security issue regarding the decline of rewards. That's correct. That is correct. If you take the tail emission out of the equation, you have a potential – you'll have an unsecure coin, or you would have to drastically restrict the block size like Bitcoin has done, and in which case – you come back to a problem. So the minute it has the maximum number of coins, you have a problem to be right. to be right off the bat. Now I'm a you know I've looked at a lot of different projects um, and what the dynamics, but I usually look for these parameters. Is I mean I, there was one project that they had a um, a debt tax on moving between a synthetic USD and the coin Haven. itself. Haven, yeah. yeah. And, so, and, that, and essentially what you have, is that that's exactly what I'm talking about. And they had a, and they, and they and look at those stuff, oh, cool. they, they actually don't have, they have a tail emission. They have the same more as Monero. They don't have a pre-mine. They don't have none of this stuff. And then all of a sudden there's this hidden debt tax on money transmission. Well, if you want to really put a red flag in front of FinCEN, like a and that's basically it. A debt tax on money transmission. So why is that? Why is that a red flag for you? And I'm going to ask him next week. So I'm doing an interview uh, but, uh, with Sam. Uh, yeah, it was very simple. Okay. Yeah. If you, if you if what they have is a coin called XUSD, which effectively is a peg, it's a sort of a, a synthetic link through oracles to the US dollar on Haven, and you transfer, you you're going to sell that. On the blockchain for the Haven token. That is actually money transmission. Now they're saying we're in a decentralized, we're DeFi, we're not CFI. But wait a minute, there's a centralized agency that is collecting a debt tax on that transaction. It's no longer DeFi, CFI. So now you have an MSB that is collecting a debt tax on money transmission because you're exchanging the, the synthetic token for the floating one. That's actually an exchange. If you read the FinCEN guidance, that's exactly what it is. So bingo, you've got now a debt tax on money transmission. 
Well, and a centralized point of failure too, because if they figure absolutely. out who those people are, uh, that could spell trouble for the entire. There, well, two things. First of all, they're in, they're uncompliant unless they actually do AML and NYC and all this stuff. So they're non-compliant at the protocol level. And so now you're relying on the fact that they can stay under the radar. Nobody's going to touch the thing in a centralized exchange because it's very easy to see that the thing is uh, illegal, basically, because you've got this debt tax in there. They're doing money transmission between a synthetic US dollar and the, and the Haven token. And they're charging this debt tax, and it's going to a centralized entity. And they're probably not reporting any of this stuff. <laughs> well, whether they report, it doesn't matter. They, 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 they have to comply with money laundering legislation. See, one of the problems that people don't realize about Monero, Monero is actually one of the most compliant coins on the market. Perkins Coie, right, came out with the paper that said, yeah. Well, that's precisely it. But the reason is that we don't have a debt tax that we don't have a founder's reward, that we're not taxing exchanges in some weird way, that we're not collecting money in a center. All of the development is done through either voluntary donations, volunteer time, or a combination of the two. Okay, so yeah, Haven, in order to gain legitimacy, now I don't know if they could backtrack on the money that they've already taken in. I'm not sure if that leaves them exposed to liability, which is going to be without a statute of limitations therefore you know making the project unviable for the future but if they changed from just relying on donations and got rid of the dev tax uh, what would your thoughts be on well that? if the problem is it's very difficult to go back because once you start collecting debt taxes convincing that people to actually donate to you is very very hard that's the problem that Ccash for example is having right now they're kind of addicted to it. So that's the first problem. The second problem is you already have a built-in compliance problem with whoever's controlling the code and, and the GitHubs and all that. Yeah. So so you get into can you then become like, you know, can you sort of redeem yourself with the regulator and stop doing the bad things and hope that you can settle with them? And that's what Ripple tried with FinCEN, and now they're fighting the SEC. I mean, that's kind of the scenario. The reason they're, they're not in the radar is because they're a much smaller project. But they have real open liability and a real exposure to non-compliance and to regulatory risk that are just huge. Right, right. And that's pretty problematic. And talking about regulations, uh, that's something that you're pretty well-versed on uh, is regulations, mm -hmm. OFAC, and everything like that. Um, we've been seeing a lot of new regulatory initiatives be introduced into Congress, uh, trying to be stuffed into this infrastructure bill. What are your thoughts on all of that? There was a big uproar about this, but it looks like it's calmed down a little bit because people are anticipating that the Treasury or the IRS or whoever uh, is going to issue guidance, which is going to be more reasonable uh, on well, that. But what are your thoughts? Let me backtrack a bit because the, the first major piece of regulation with respect to the co Congress actually occurred in not in the infrastructure bill, but occurred in um, military appropriation bills at the end of the Trump administration. And that contains some very critical changes with respect to cryptocurrency. Essentially, what they said is they're going to treat it as a fungible bearer asset. Now, here's where generations come different. Most people, my generation, I was born, I'm 64, by the way. Uh, most people, my generation, are familiar with things with bearer assets. And most people that say your generation are not. I mean, well, I'm talking the only bearer asset that's commonly used today is cash. Are you saying bearer asset? Bearer asset. 
like an asset will like for example where the bearer of the asset oh, of, bearer. The, of the bearer has control of the asset so think of for example cash think of a check payable to the bearer okay okay think of a bond who the holder of this bond actually owns that bond okay that's how it used to be in the 1960s but they basically disappeared. Everything is sort of centralized ledgers except for cash. What the U.S. Congress did is they said they were going to treat cryptocurrencies as bearer assets. And they passed a series of regulations also with FinCEN along those lines. So that's the, that's the major change that occurred. And it caught a lot of people out, out of guard because most people did not understand what a bearer asset was. What we're talking with the IRS or these infrastructures reporting requirements. Essentially, they're talking that you're going to have to treat cryptocurrency assets for reporting purposes much of the way as you treat cash. Okay. So that's the implication of that of, of that infrastructure bill. And again, it's got a lot of people concerned because they're they're going back to the same theme, which is the theme of treating it as cash or treating it as a bearer asset. And so what would the recording implications of this be? The recording well, reporting? For example, I think if a business receives more than $10,000 in cash, they have to report it to the IRS. At one time or just throughout a certain well, so whatever the Well, I, you're trying to get around the question of structuring, but essentially within a certain time period, yes. And uh, and a similar application will apply to uh, cryptocurrencies. So they're they're essentially extending these kind of rules. And the other part that was really complicated is that they had these requirements with respect to decentralized finance. And this is the part that got really people worried. And what they were saying, and I remember reading the requirements in in that, is that certain types of DeFi could become. Um, reportable. But the problem is a lot of this DeFi was actually CeFi. So we're going back again to this theme that I was mentioning against in Havana. Uh, they're, they're clamping down on these hidden debt taxes and centralized control and so on on something that is in fact a CeFi, centralized finance masquerading as DeFi. Okay. And they're getting into this and this is why it's, it's onerous because they're catching a lot of this stuff. Hmm. So you're dealing with um, if you in any way, shape, or form facilitate the trade or whatever, then you are involved in. And the exemptions, you basically, open source software that's released openly is fine. But the minute you have a proprietary software or an app with DRM and all of that, and you lock it down and you try to control it, then there's a controller that they can go after. I see. I see. And if you're initiating the loaning of crypto uh, so that people oh, yeah. could get uh, interest payments and things like that. I think we saw that recently with Coinbase, uh, yes. where the SEC went after them, but they're not going after others. But if this new law passes, they're going to go after everyone for that, right? Well, basically, I think what we're going to see is you don't even need a new law. Even under existing regulations, the SEC could go, I would say, realistically, after probably about 95% of crypto assets on the market today. Wow. And so that would cause a lot of regulatory overhead for. So basically, these are the, the test cases that we're seeing with Ripple, for example. 
the the interrogatories with respect to Ethereum. Ethereum is very interesting because my take on Ethereum is that uh, the security was they, they literally had a security issue which was paid in Ethereum, and then the issue of the security folded, and that's how they did it in Ethereum. But uh, basically, the minute you try to raise an ICO or something like that, or a crowdfund or whatever, and then you use the with the idea that the people who pay this are going to get money back or a return mm-hmm. in the form of whatever asset you're creating, yeah. you've now created a security. Right. And so now there's sort of going to be like a new barrier of entry for anyone who wants to get into the market. Huge. And so there, you're going to see consolidation for the most part in the crypto sphere if they pass these regulations where a lot of the earlier crypto projects, I mean, I don't know if any of this is going to be retroactive, but, you know, the people who got in first, sort of like what happened with oil, you know, 100 years ago, they're now going to be able to solidify their position, you know, because they're able to get in easy, not necessarily have to deal with a lot of overhead and compliance. Uh, and now uh, I imagine a lot of projects which are out there and about and have had network effect success and not re- have really had to deal with regulation. Now they have the ability to do that while newcomers may not. So, uh, well, if you look at the EU regulations, which I've been looking at quite carefully, they're literally grandparented. They're initially, uh, sorry. Large, uh, if you're looking at the EU regulations in the European, in the European Union, what they did there is they grandparented existing projects. Right. Okay. Yeah. So. So they basically just grandparented it, and they get, and, and they and then they say, okay, we've got to put these regulations for the new stuff, and they're quite onerous, actually. Um, so the what they did there, so Monero, for example, will be fine, but uh, it, it gets very, very hard, and it's very, very hard to launch a project without a pre-miner, ninja miner, a funders reward, all this kind of stuff. That's the tough part, and that's going to be the high entry to barrier because they're going to regulate, uh, like ICOs are basically going to be IPOs. You basically have a security. That's what they are. The securities on a blockchain. I mean, it's going to call a spade a spade. So we could see crypto SPACs coming along any day now. Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah. I mean, I, the other way to look at it, if you look, are you familiar with Huawei? The Huawei test for securities? I'm not. Okay. The, this is 1940s. They had this orange grove, and there was an investment contract where you got paid on, on the thing that was deemed to be a security. It's a okay. classic test that the SEC uses in the United States for, for what is security and what isn't. And, of course, the, the product in Huawei was oranges. Now, the, the investment contract is security, but the oranges are not. And this is the example that I use for Ethereum. And it's that they created something similar to Huawei, and the Ethereum was the oranges. Okay. Okay. So people invested in a project got back some oranges, which maybe weren't securities, but the project as a whole is a security? Well, basically, in the case of how they invested in a project and they were paid from the proceeds of selling the oranges. I see. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. So they were actually paid in US dollars because they marketed and sold the oranges from the orange groups. And the, 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 the scenario that I'm talking about is suppose they were paid in oranges, the oranges would not be securities. I see. Okay. Okay, that's the distinction. That's the interesting distinction that I'm making here. So the the, but that's the classic case in in the United States for securities law, and the fact that you move from putting the security on a gilded piece of paper that's a bearer stock, to a centralized ledger, 
to a blockchain doesn't change the fact that it's a security. Right. So what projects do you think are out there that could be all of a sudden listed as securities? Uh, do you think this would be retroactive or do you think this is just going to happen to new projects coming on the scene? Well, I mean, a perfect happen example is uh, look at what's going on with Ripple. I mean, Ripple is a phenomenal test case for all of this. I mean, that's probably the best example. It's one of the earlier ones. Uh, they're trying to claim that Ethereum is a security, and because this question is going to come in, are they going to try and pierce the corporate veil of the issue of the security that is now dissolved in Switzerland? Right. Um, but if someone were to try to do the same thing today, they're going to face that problem. Zcash, I mean, they've got this massive founder's reward built into the protocol. Mm -hmm. Again, that's a centralized entity. They're getting money out of it. They're going to be, that's a regulatory target right there. Uh, even Dash with their uh, master nodes giving up 10% uh, for, for development fund could get attacked on that again. Pretty well, anything that has created a token, issued it to people who expect a return on their investment, and then they've created a security, they've created money transmission. If they're not compliant and regulated, they're, they're a target. Right. And I imagine this would play into a lot of proof of stake projects, right? Where people can stake their coins, get yield, yield farming projects, maybe, you know, the swap cryptos. Like not, from, not from the staking per se, but how did that token come into uh, in the first place? If you look really early proof of stake projects, such as Peercoin, where they had a proof of work to issue it, and then it goes into proof of stake. That might be okay. But how did that first stake coin get issued? That's where your problem occurs. Interesting. Okay. Wow. That's why that's where you have a so yeah, this is a hornetness. There's very few projects. If I, if I were, if you ask me what I think is safe, I would say Bitcoin. I would say Bitcoin Cash. I would say Litecoin. I would say Monero. I would say Bitcoin SV. I would say Dogecoin. Handful like that. Okay. Are there any other privacy projects uh, in the space that you think could have a shot of being regulatory compliant, but also fulfill its duties as you know covering people's privacy and things like that? Well, I mean, if you want to think of Ion, uh, but Ion doesn't have uh, confidential transactions, which is a key to Monero's privacy. Um, I mean. You know, you're looking at uh, the Fire, but again, they have a pro they have a, a founder's reward, so they're in trouble. It's very hard to find a coin period without with or without privacy that doesn't have mm. these problems. Because nowadays, if you want to gain entry to the market, uh, you're going to need to you know do marketing, and you're going to need to have funds coming in to develop the project and pay developers and things like this. And that's very hard to do if you don't have. Uh, developer fees or founders fees or anything like that, right? Pre-mine. Well, I mean, even the ones that are successfully compliant, basically, I mean, if you look at Litecoin, if you look at Monero, Monero was forked off Bitcoin, which is an 83% pre-mine. Mm, yeah. Uh, Litecoin, <laughs> Litecoin was forked off uh, Tenebrick, and then it went Fairbrick, and then it bridge, and then it became uh, Litecoin. So, so you get that scenario where someone takes a, a, a pre-mine and then they turn around and fork it and they start a, a, a clean project with that. I mean, that's a possibility. Um, but there's very few that have, I think, achieved the compliance um, level. 
of avoiding this question of being I mean, about the only way I can think of doing it is to fork some non-compliant coin using open source code and then split off from that and then turn around and, and develop that as an open source project. Right. And how confident are you that the regulatory pressures which could be put on some of these crypto projects like Haven or some of these other projects which may not be in compliance, how confident are you that they could deploy uh, enforcement action to shut these projects down uh because we've looked into fatf we've looked into other uh global aml kyc regulatory organizations and it mm -hmm. looks like they have a lot of control throughout the entire world to shut things like this down uh and enforce if you are if you are if you created the vulnerability that you are non-compliant through not being an msb or selling securities unregistered you've created the door for a regulator to enforce that. It's that simple. You've opened the door to that attack. Right, and the long-term viability of a project which can stay under the surface that long uh, is not good, is what you're saying. I mean, probably not well, I mean, if it stays really, there. yeah, I mean, if it's really hidden and not that attention to it, yeah, but it can't fight back because it's basically got this huge vulnerability. And again, let's take a look and see what happens with Ripple. See if they can see what what happens there. That's going to tell us a lot. Right. So that's a big test case right that, there. That's a huge test case right there. And it's gonna, because you, what I'm saying is in order to have a regulatory attack, you need the pre-mine, the Nina mine, the founder's reward or whatever it is. But that may not be enough. And that's what the Ripple case would say. So that's where the fight occurs. But yes, definitely anything like that is vulnerable. Interesting, interesting. Okay. Um, and it's good for Monero, right? Because they've seemed to have passed a hurdle and that gives them some precedent to move into the future with some regulatory backing. Um, well, now, did that change? Could they say, wow, this is actually dangerous to our enterprise of rolling out CBDC and uh, having everybody be onboarded to this new global digital currency what do you think about that could they change their mind and well uh, i mean in order to make monero non-compliant you have to directly change the law which they could do right they could well you could but then you're up against extra law you get so you know you got a lot of factors so that is a risk absolutely but you can't do it under existing legislation what has happened is there's been this pressure on exchanges where they're being told not to use it in the back door through essentially the actions of these blockchain surveillance or chain analysis companies. But again, if you look at the United States, Kraken has no problems with regulatory selling Monero at all. And the reason I think they don't is because they're way more compliant than a Coinbase. They're already on shaky ground on a whole bunch of other stuff. And suddenly they're nervous of adding Monero to them. I mean, we had a case in Canada of an exchange that didn't list Monero and then got taken over, got suffered penalties by the Ontario Securities Commission because they were trading in securities on registered securities. And they were manipulating the price of Bitcoin. They were caught. Interesting. So you're saying that some of these exchanges like Coinbase aren't adapting Monero because they're trying to score some political points. Maybe they're already on thin ice and they don't want to do anything to add weight onto that thin ice and dunk through the water, you know? So maybe that's, that's what they're doing. Yeah, that's a very good explanation. I think you said it very well. They're, they're, they're already, if you're already on thin ice, you don't want to take that risk. 
Um, and so, yes, that's uh, that's the thing. So you have the, the issue that Monero is actually, uh, uh, you know, uh, it's one of the most compliant coins on the market. Fascinating. I'm and yet most people, most people. I think we're going to have to put that in the title right there. No, I no, that's, it's, it's, it is a very compliant coin. The fact that it works, he, here's the thing to, to look at, summarize. We have a lot of banks masquerading as cyberpunks. And they cry uncle when they suddenly are regulated like a bank. Yes. And that's the issue. If you're a true cyberpunk, you're compliant. If you're a true cyberpunk, you're compliant. Yes. But if you're a bank masquerading as a cyberpunk, you're gonna get nailed. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and um, that's the and that's what we're dealing with. That's what we're dealing in a big way here. So yes, I I I I think that there is a lot of that happening right now. But yeah, Monero is a very compliant coin. So let me ask you this. This will tie into another interesting question. Mm -hmm. Um one of my friends, he has a perspective that one of the main adopters of Monero is actually going to be governments. Uh, he thinks that you know the the businesses are going to use Bitcoin, maybe the people are going to use Litecoin or the Lightning Network or something like that. He's a Bitcoin guy, and then he says that the governments are going to use Monero because they're going to do a bunch of nefarious stuff behind the scenes, and money goes missing all the time to the tunes of hundreds of billions. If you look at you know Pentagon audits and stuff like that, so. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that governments are going to use Monero? Maybe they accept tax payments in other currencies. They do atomic swaps in Monero to do whatever behind the scenes. Do you think that's Oh, absolutely. I mean, we talk about Pentagon audits. Let's, let's look at ourselves. I mean, you have black ops, and you're going to have to pay for them somehow. Good point. Right. And that's where you need to have money that you kind of – it may be that you have the – Three thousand dollar toilet seat or something. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's part of it too. So, so you're gonna have to pay for that somehow and hide it in your budget. Let me give you an example. That's a really interesting. Do you know how the Afghani, the Afghan currency, was propped up before the Taliban took over? I don't, but they're going through a hyperinflationary thing now. So now, yeah. But how was it propped up before? Plain loads of U.S. cash. Really. Just pounds yes. of cash, sort of like Just what we did. Pallets of U.S. greenbacks. Some of them ended in the hands of the president, who then left the country with about a hundred million worth. Man, I'm waiting for that helicopter to show up in my neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so, so this is the kind of stuff. So, yes, definitely, I would say governments would want to use uh, cryptocurrency like Monero uh, for for certain operations. I can see that happening absolutely. Well, good, good. Um, but I would also say that uh, scaling is going to be the killer. <laughs> the killer application for Monero. So scalability, privacy, just okay. Um, good things happening there. Yes. Let's see what else is going on. Uh, are you familiar with the developments for uh, Haveno? We've heard a lot of great things about Haveno. Uh, a lot of things going on with these centralized exchanges. Well uh, that people don't like. So I imagine there's a huge market desire. Okay. What, for is, what, is Habeno, what is Habeno trying to do? I'm trying to understand what it is. I mean, it's very simple. You have a token and then they're issuing or minting a token that's back to the US dollar. And this inflates or deflates the Habeno money supply. So the concept is that you're going to back up these 
XUSDs, for example. Oh, sorry. I've been on the decentralized exchange that's a fork of BISC uh, that's going to use Monero to... Oh, sorry. Oh, no, no, no. Haven. Okay, 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 okay. Okay, uh, that I'm less familiar with, um, but we're talking about uh, like a, a decentralized exchange where you actually link a token. Is that what you're saying? Or So it's going to be a decentralized peer-to-peer exchange where people mm-hmm. use Monero as the base currency to buy other cryptocurrencies and trade. So, you know, you go on BISC, which is a peer-to-peer exchange, mm-hmm. and Bitcoin is used for base pairs. Well, uh, Havana is going to be a fork of that where Monero is used as the base currency. And so it's going to be by default private. Uh, it's going to be peer to peer. And so I'm thinking that that's going to be very popular with people, uh, you know, who oh, don't okay. want to be exposed to these centralized exchanges. Yeah, confusing with Haven. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, a lot of Haven. Okay, no, 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 sorry. I, I confused it with a different one. Okay. Um, so basically, what you're talking about here is auto matching, but not. Are actually a centralized entity holding the funds. Right. And I think that they need to get the multi-sig uh, issue fixed, which I believe in Monero that is pretty complicated. Uh, there are a lot well, this is an interesting that, question on a different side because the issue with the multi-sig here there is the issue behind things like Cryptek versus some of the newer algorithms that are considered. One of the reasons why I don't think that Cryptek may get adopted right away and in fact, there's going to be a lot more research is because of this multi-sig issue. Because it's doable with cryptic, but it's incredibly convoluted. Essentially, you have too many uh, communication um, cycles in order to set up a multi-sig. That's the problem. I'm sure you're trying to explain this simply, but communication but, cycles. Well, like if I want to do a multi-sig with 10 people, how many interactions do I need to do? Probably a few, right? And how many interactions do all the group have to do? That's the question. And are you going to get something like a binomial coefficient? Or, you know, you get all the permutations, or you just get a simple, you can do the multi-sig with multiple people at once. And that, I think, is the issue that, uh, in a simple way to understand it, is okay. the question of multi-sigs. Depending on the protocol that you're using, how that's going to happen. And I believe they have to solve that before uh, they get Haveno up and running. Unless atomic swaps can be integrated into this somehow. Well, atomic swaps, you know. the way the way atomic swaps between Monero and Bitcoin work, all the heavy lifting is actually done on the Bitcoin side. Now, the big one there is going to be something else. It's actually going to be taproot on Bitcoin. Say that again. Taproot on Bitcoin. Taproot on Bitcoin, yes. And we talked about this on uh, Reddit. You had yes. said that uh, privacy could be introduced to Bitcoin through mm-hmm. atomic swaps happening from Bitcoin to Monero and then back into Bitcoin, and that could offer them a lot of privacy help. But I think you said that a lot of these people are going to look at that as unnecessary overhead and just go into Monero, right? Uh, well, the point is, yes, that's what would happen. But essentially what you could have is Monero becoming a second tier at one point to Bitcoin and then taking over. Right. Uh, I mean, that's a, that's what I'm saying. But the issue with th- the issue with the, with the atomic swaps of Bitcoin is it can be attacked by the fee attack on the Bitcoin side, because if, if Bitcoin fees are very very high, you could literally have someone set up a Monero atomic swap and offer Monero, and then you de- decline the Bitcoin and effectively shun the fees on the Bitcoin side. Right, and those extra Bitcoin fees at any given time can be pretty big. And so- that's the that's the the Achilles heel 
of atomic swaps between Monero and Bitcoin. And that's a problem on the Bitcoin side. You can't really get around it mm -hmm. because you have these huge fees on Bitcoin. So this could be a way that Monero could actually bootstrap onto Bitcoin and mm -hmm. then, you mm -hmm. know, swing ahead. So uh, that's, that's another question that I had for you. Um, I had past tense. I just forgot it. So let me see if yes. I can bring it back. Okay. Uh, so Monero, Bitcoin. I'll think of it in a sec. Uh, it was a good question. Uh, I just thought of it. Monero, Bitcoin. Let's just move on. I'll think of it okay. in a sec. But uh, we'll come back. What are your thoughts we'll on atomic swaps going on the mainnet? I hear that there are good developments going on with that. Uh, how long do you think it'll take for wallets to be able to integrate that and for that to become adopted and easy to use by the market? Well, the big, the big impact I think is going to be taproot on Bitcoin on that. So very soon. Very soon. Yeah, because Taproot, I think, is supposed to come in live on Bitcoin in November or something like that. Okay. Yeah. Very good, very good. So that, I think, is going to be the big, big breakthrough for that because um, that's really going to increase the privacy on the Bitcoin side. One of the reasons, one of the problems, of course, the atomic swap between Monero and Bitcoin is this question of tainted Bitcoin and how that's going to be priced in. Tainted Bitcoin. So, yes, I'm so glad you brought that up. That was my question that I was thinking of. Okay, yes. so what is going to be the incentive for people who are into Monero to atomically swap their Monero for Bitcoin? I imagine there's going to be a lot more demand from the Bitcoin side to get into Monero than there is vice versa. Well, I guess the market is going to have to put an answer to that. Is it going to be a premium on Monero uh, if you buy through atomic swaps as they from a centralized exchange? I mean, that's a good question. I mean, so you got to look at it that way. So is it going to be enough of a premium? I mean, if you can sell Monero through a KYC exchange for Bitcoin, if you're aiming to go into, into fiat, then why would you want to do it through Atomic Swaps? Right. I mean, you're exposing yourself to all sorts of issues. You're still going to have, you still have the privacy on the Monero side. And the flip side, the other way around. So, so I think that, that there may be a, a reluctance. On the other, uh, on the other hand, how easy is it going to be to? What's the risk that you cannot sell that Bitcoin? Uh, people in El Salvador are going to want to buy it, and is that going to end up being a major source for the sink for all these Bitcoins that may have questionable history? Do you have a problem also the scenario that I'm talking about? If you sell, um. If you buy, sorry, if you if you sell Bitcoin for Monero, and then the the seller decides to do something on towards, and you get back to the scenario that I was talking about, where uh, the Bitcoin is traced back to you, and the, and you get implicated on the Bitcoin side. Well, you mentioned the same problem with of a personal withdrawal from a vast, because we have the same scenario. Fascinating, absolutely fascinating. So there's a lot of questions around that, I think, around the fungibility of Bitcoin, that it's going to really complicate things. It's interesting. You see people saying that they want to mix the Bitcoins through things like Wasabi Wallet or uh, mm. before they put them into the swap or after they take it from the swap. Right. We've talked about Bitcoin mixing a little bit here on this channel. I think that they have algorithms already in the works to figure out either A, who is using a coin join mixer, and B... Mm -hmm how they can even track it after the coin join mixing happens. Um, so 
again, it's an imperfect solution as far as I can tell. Well, the, the problem, let me tell you what the problem is with that. If you look at the history of Monero, the problem with Bitcoin mixing is that you know the amounts. And that's your killer skill. Hmm. In Monero prior to 2017, we had basically a situation where we didn't have confidential transactions. And so you could you were tra you could track amounts and break the rig signatures. The minute we introduced confidential transactions, suddenly that was the night and day with privacy in Monero. And it's the same problem with these coin joins. Coin join, if you have confidential transactions, it's going to work. But the problem is, is they could track the amounts. Right, right. And, and so that's where you get into trouble. If you see the same amount just mixing through a cycle, they could see that and say that's most likely to be a coin joining mm -hmm. or Bitcoin mixing activity. And then exchanges, as we talked about before, could identify that as high risk. And the entire pool of funds could then become tainted. And so that actually causes more problems than it could solve. Um, I think I have one more question. Thank you so yes. much for being here for as long as no you problem. have. You've been very generous with the time. Uh, what are you working on right now? Uh, you are a Monero Core developer, so you've got your hands tied with a lot of stuff in the details of the project. So what are you working on? Well, uh, what here? I finished recently, of course, was the um, the changes to the scaling algorithm that are going to be going to the next hard fork. Basically, issue 70 on MRL, and there was a problem associated with stabilizing the long term using the long term medium to stabilize the fees of, in the short term medium. Essentially, what the change the big change is is that the minimum 300,000 byte becomes dynamic and becomes actually the long term medium. That's the big change in that. There's also an increase in the uh, growth rate from 1.4 to 2 for the for the um, long term medium. And these are necessary, to be honest, to respond to a pandemic like COVID, because potentially had Monero had a higher level of adoption, we could have had some problems with responding to COVID of other things. And that's wow. where I came, I, came, I came across that. The problem is if you suddenly have a big drop in, in economic activity and then the fees skyrocket as a result, and this stabilizes that. Okay, so it sort of sets up a mad situation where it's a mean adjusted deviation or something like that where well, it's, it's, the, it's the change is less variable. Well, what happens with the fees in Monero is as the block size increases, then the fees go down. So let's say you're sitting at 100 times the existing block size uh, and suddenly the, there's a drop in economic activities. And if your fees are just pegged to the short to medium, which they were, were until this hard fork that's coming up, then all of a sudden your fees could skyrocket. Yeah, and that would disincentivize people even more from being part of Monero. Maybe it's, that disincentivize exactly. them long-term even. So, it's If you look what happened with COVID, I mean, you had a level of economic activity that suddenly plunges because of the COVID shutdowns. And then what happens is there's a bounce back to kind of the previous level, but there's a shift in economic activity away say, towards cryptocurrency. This is a scenario that you can have. So you have a situation where the the, the Monero network will, will plunge an activity. Let's say it's 100 times what it is right now. And you start at that level. You plunge down, fees skyrocket, and then you have a problem ramping back up again in, in the recovery phase. 
Right, because uh, you don't want to be the first person back in when the fees are high. You want to wait for other people to get in. Yeah, it goes a big. Thing. Yeah, like if you think about it, if you're if your your fees could go up by a factor of you know a thousand, in in a sudden plunge. And what this does is, if you use the long term medium as the um, penalty free zone, which is basically then that stabilizes the whole thing. Okay. So now the long-term medium will not only just prevent the, the uh, uh, massive growth, but also provides a floor for fees uh, that allows for, uh, to, to respond to sort of a sudden event like that without a disruption. That is amazing. That is a lot of technical stuff. That, that's, uh, uh, that's kind of the big project. The next thing I'm working on, of course, right now is we're working on various um, presentations to the regulatory things for the European Union. Oh, you guys are going to be making presentations to... Well, we're, uh, actually, we're making a response. Sorry, a response to the uh, uh, various um, EU proposals. They have a I humongous anti-money laundering uh, thing, and we, we've already made one response, and we'll make another response. Just, that is just you doing the Lord's work. That is amazing. You are working so, on all fronts here. <laughs> so this How is the kind of... How is it that people can support your work? How is it that people can support you and your efforts to? Uh, well, I've been very fortunate in being an early investor in Monero, to be honest, but oh, uh, and Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's kind of where I am. But there are many ways you can support what we do. Of course, you can support through the uh, general fund. You can support the various CCS projects to support the project. And you can use use and use Monero. You can do what you're doing. You can do this kind of work where you bring people in and and so on. So, there's lots of ways you can support the project. Well, good, um, good. And I would encourage our viewers to do that, uh, share the links, support the general fund. Uh, we've got to get the word out about this stuff because with everything going on, mm -hmm. uh, we need to build these parallel economies. We need to make adoption really kick in. And uh, I think there's nothing more important to do than that uh, at this moment. And uh, I think that you're doing, again, the Lord's work. I think that there's so much potential for this project. And um a lot of hopes are tied into this. So mm -hmm. that being said, Arctic Mind, thank you so much for no. being generous with your time, coming on, teaching us all this technical stuff and regulatory stuff that we just don't get too much here on the channel, uh, much yeah. less anywhere else. So really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Well, thank you. All right. So.